I want for us this morning to look just at one verse, though a, a minor paragraph or a small paragraph would be verses 23 through 25. I'll read those verses and then want you to notice verse 25 in particular. Now it was not written for his sake alone, thinking of the experience of Abraham. It was not written for his sake alone that it was reckoned unto him, but for our sake also, unto whom it shall be reckoned, who believe on him that raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. After the First World War and the collapse of the Ottoman, we would call it Turkish, I suppose, Ottoman Empire, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Balkan Peninsula was broken up into a number of small states, often hostile to one another, uncooperative, and it became so uh, even under the influence from time to time under a third party, promoting secession and fragmentation. The term has come into uh, English in since the First World War as to balkanize. Now I submit to you that often today the Bible is balkanized. It's compartmentalized and we don't look for the great themes that are found in the Bible but all too often for personal nuggets in our devotional time that might inspire us. In addition, there's a movement or a great number of movements that call for change. New ages call for new approaches and it depends upon who you speak with what those approaches might be. And so there's a tendency for us, not us personally, but for Christians in the 21st century century to to balkanize the, the Bible and to put us under some new tyranny, something that is new and better and relevant and contemporary. But I submit to you that there is a timelessness about the Bible. A timelessness that transcends modern trends that have become so popular. And we we find them here and we really can't find anything more basic, more timeless than what Paul writes here who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. And of course, much of the book of Romans, if not all of the book of Romans, has for its focus upon the doctrine of justification. 
justification on account of Christ alone through faith alone. Beginning in chapter 1, Paul develops that by drawing attention to man's condemnation because of his sin. In fact, chapter 1 through chapter 3 in verses 19 and 20 deal with the condemnation of man that we come under the condemnation of the law because of our sinfulness. And then in chapter 3, verse 21 and following, there's something of a definition of justification. It's, it's characterization. It's analysis and it's affirmation. And it's apology or defense from the life of Abraham. And then in these last three verses, an application of justification. And so here's a principle that has been mentioned all along from from really the very beginning. In fact, Paul introduces justification in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. Here is a principle then that is formally enunciated, verified in Abraham, and now applied to us. This is not a memorial to Abraham, but rather a revelation of God's method of saving and of delivering. The 19th century writer John Brown wrote, the ground of justification is not here before the apostle's mind. It comes forward prominently enough afterwards. He's thinking now of the first 22 verses. All that he has in view just now is to prove that the divine method of justification as exhibited in the case of Abraham was without law and by faith. And the passage closes with a reminder of the place of conviction, of confession, of faith in this saving method and the object of this saving method. Now the interesting thing for us today on this particular Lord's Day is the reference to resurrection. You find it in verse 24 But for our sake also, so this isn't just about Abraham, but it's for our sake, unto whom it shall be reckoned who believe. And there's the instrumental means mentioned again, and Paul has already done that, of course, before. Who believe on him that raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And to apply it even further in verse 25, our verse, who, meaning Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. There's a connection here between justification and resurrection. In fact, I submit to you that in this verse, there 
there is implied a number of connections between resurrection and significant doctrines. Here is resurrection, here is justification, but implied even more. (coughs) In fact, Luther said, in these verses, the whole of Christianity is comprehended. And so what's implied, what's what's inferred, what what are the doctrines that this passage draws attention to or at least uh, suggest. I think there are actually nine of them that are to be found here. First of all, notice the foundation. The foundation of our faith. It is God. Who is it that raised Jesus from the dead? Well, it wasn't magic. It wasn't mortal man. But it's God the Father. The verbs are passive. In fact, some have called called the verbs here a divine passive. He was delivered up, and we'll come back to that in a moment, and was raised. Well, who raised him? Well, God himself. In fact, both are acts of God. For example, in Acts 3.15, 4.10, and 28, that is verse 28, there are references to his being delivered up and then raised. That is, God raised him from the dead. Romans 8.32 as well. He was delivered over. Well, who delivered him? Well, from a casual reading of the New Testament, we would say, well, it was Judas. Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus and who delivered him up um, to um, the Jewish leaders for 30 pieces of silver. It was Judas who betrayed Jesus. It was Judas, Judas who delivered him over to the chief priest with a particular signal and then handed over to Herod and then handed over to Pilate and by Pilate, to the soldiers. But again, if we look carefully at Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4, we discover that God is behind all of this. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 15, But ye denied, verse 14, the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted unto him and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead. And then in in chapter 4 and verse 28, beginning with verse 27, For of the truth this city against thy holy servant Jesus whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel were gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel foreordained 
to come to pass. And again, Paul in, in Romans chapter 8 and, and verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Same verb. But delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give all things? If he has given the greater, why not will he withhold the lesser, the all things? So those texts plus Isaiah chapter 53 remind us that it was God who delivered him up. Robert Haldane wrote, Here we must look to a higher tribunal, tribunal than that of Pilate, who delivered him into the hands of the Jews. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. When Herod, Pilate, and the Gentiles with the people of Israel were gathered against, against him, it was to do whatsoever God's word and counsel had determined before to be done. And so the foundation for all of this is, is God himself. God intervened to place his only begotten son in this place. Again, Haldane went on to say, as the death of Christ according to the determinate counsel of a holy and righteous God, was a demonstration of the guilt of his people. So his resurrection was their acquittal acquittal from every charge. So what is the foundation of our faith? And what is the, the foundation of the crucifixion, resurrection, and so forth? It's God himself. Certainly it included the plans and purposes of wicked men, but God was behind it. And so as we think of the resurrection of Christ, we don't begin just with a resurrection that is perhaps metaphor for something else, but we begin with God himself. Now the other thing that the resurrection implies is And it implies it here. It's not mentioned specifically, but the incarnation. You can't have death without life. You can't have human death without human life. And you can't have resurrection being raised from the dead without a real human being. Or to put it, I suppose, um, so even the simplest can understand is that Easter requires Christmas. Easter requires Christmas. It requires that the word become flesh. It required that the word that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, as the scriptures say. And so these are not metaphors as some would make them out and perhaps some preaching is today that resurrection is a metaphor for spring or new life or hope or 
things will get better perhaps, or will get better uh, if you wait long enough, sort of a, a Hallmark movie scene, you know, uh, kind of a thing. Everything ends, ends up just right at the, end, at the end of the day. Well, that's not what the resurrection is, is all about at all. It requires the incarnation. It requires a human life because you can't have death without life. And so here's the foundation of the resurrection, even as it's the foundation of the crucifixion, it's God himself. And then the second piece is the incarnation. It requires the life of a human being. Thirdly, resurrection implies or suggests humiliation. The suffering of Jesus. Before we even think of the crucifixion, we need to think of the suffering of Jesus. He was delivered up for our trespasses. Confessions and the creeds speak of the whole of his life was marked by suffering. That makes sense, does it not? Here was one who inhabited the holy halls of eternity in which there is and was no sin, no disappointment, everything marked by perfection and holiness. And then our Savior comes into the world. And the book of Hebrews is very, is very specific and other passages of scripture are very specific and even as you read the Gospels, that Jesus, as we've often said, was tired. He was weary. Undoubtedly, he grew hungry. Um, and all of the other um, afflictions that would affect humanity, he was affected. So that, that his whole life was marked by humiliation and even abuse by the religious leaders of the day. And so the suffering of Jesus doesn't begin on the cross or even before uh, as crown of thorns uh, was placed upon his brow or any of the other things that took place in that final week before um, he was crucified. But a case can be made that the whole of his life as the God-man was marked by humiliation. Then, of course, we move from humiliation to the crucifixion. You can't have resurrection without death. And what kind of a death was it? He was delivered up for our trespasses. That the Lord Jesus Christ was subject to to the wrath of God and submitted himself to the wrath of God. He was hung upon a tree and as Pastor Stephan reminded us last week, uh, last week from Deuteronomy chapter 21 uh, and, and uh, uh, the words of Moses that cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree and Paul cites that in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 that the Lord Jesus Christ was placed under 
a curse. Not because anything that he had done, but for what we had done. And of course, that will eventually lead us to the whole subject and the whole matter of justification in which our sins were imputed to him. Not imparted as if he had actually committed them, but imputed, charged to him. And his righteousness, that active and passive obedience of Christ, then was placed to our account in what's been called that great transaction. And so the Lord Jesus suffered the crucifixion, not just the, the pains, the physical pains, but also the very wrath of his own father in his soul. And so the Lord Jesus suffered, and he suffered for us, and therefore he was raised for us. That's an interesting concept, is it not? We'll have to come back to that, but raised for us. We think he was raised in a sense for himself, and and you can make a case for that, and he was, of course. He returns to heaven, and he returns to his Father's presence and to the glory, um, as it were, um, that um, he witnessed and possessed and saw and all of the rest in eternity. And so it was for him, in a very real sense, glory, but also for us. And that's the whole point of Paul's message here. I think, fifthly, there's a, There's a reference here, maybe a bit more veiled, but there's a reference here to resurrection and its connection with, and that's what we're looking at, the connection with all of these other truths and doctrines, with the doctrine of election. Robert Haldane makes this point that this was for those whom the Father gave to him. John 6.37 and 6.44. Gentiles too through faith would be included. Abraham is our father as Gentiles as well as the father of a particular group or body of people. He's the savior for all who believe, for all who have come to believe, for all who have been given faith. And all of this is fixed by God's eternal purpose. You don't have resurrection or even crucifixion without divine fixation. Not only that which happens, the foundation, the intrusion of God in history, but even before in the divine counsels of eternity. All of this was fixed by God's purpose. And if it's fixed by God's purpose, then it was destined To happen. Now, sixthly, and we've hinted at this, 
But there's also the doctrine of substitution. That the Lord Jesus Christ's death was not for him, but for us. And his resurrection, in a saving sense, was not for him, but it was for us. Here is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And again, we're reminded of passages like Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The Lord Jesus Christ died for others. He established himself in the place of sinners. And again, we have in this verse and in Acts 2 and, and, and even on the occasion of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23 as the Lord Jesus, is, we are told that he, he takes bread and he breaks it and he takes a cup and he distributes it and he speaks of this being for them. For them. Here is the classic doctrine of the atonement embedded in Isaiah, excuse me, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. And then, seventhly, there's the matter of satisfaction. Not only substitution, but satisfaction because it could have failed. But he was delivered over. And he was raised. There's satisfaction. There's completion. Justice was satisfied. The law was honored and magnified. And eternal life rewarded because the Father was satisfied. And it was a legal satisfaction. It's not smoke and mirrors. But a legal Satisfaction. Justice was satisfied. The law was honored. And pardon is bestowed because it has been earned by Jesus and bestowed. And all of that because the Father now smiles. Upon guilty sinners. He's satisfied. And again, and not in some mystical way, but in the reality of a price having been paid and accepted. 
And so all of that, all of those seven things then lead us to what Paul speaks of here as justification. He's raised for our justification. Resurrection is important because it speaks of acquittal and acceptance. It's actually the proclamation of God that that what Jesus had done has been accepted by him. And all of the things that we've talked about, including substitution, satisfaction, are a reality. And God proclaims that by raising his son from the dead for us. Again, there has to be something there that was pleasing to the father and pleasing to the son. But the point that Paul makes here is that it's a proclamation, it's a vindication, it's a verification. And so it doesn't have anything to do with flowers blooming in spring and the rest of it. Or, hoping, or hope against all hope that everything's going to turn out all, all right. Everything will turn out all right. Because of Christ, for the Christian, for the one who believes. And so again, Paul reintroduces this word of justification. There was transgression. There is imputation. There is justification. And the way it is received is through personal conviction or faith. And in verse 24... There is then a restriction. It's faith alone and nothing else. It's not the works of the law. It's not the works of our own inventiveness. But it's the work of Jesus Christ. I've used this illustration before. And it's subject to misunderstanding, but I'll use it anyway because you're smart folks and you'll get it. I've done this in Cuba where I've been teaching something along these lines and I'll ask the question, let me ask you a question. Is salvation by works? And of course, they're horrified that any Reformed, even Reformed Baptist would say that it's salvation could be by works. But then I wait for the uproar to die down and I say, somebody had to work. It's grace for us. But it was a work that Jesus entered into willingly that the Father accepted and there's nothing we can do. I think it's one of the hardest doctrines on the planet, is it not? There's absolutely nothing we can do and we give lip service to that and then we turn around and try to earn things somehow and think, well, maybe God will be pleased because I did this. God is pleased. His favor rests upon us. His smile rests upon us because of his son. And you see how all of these doctrines then make way for the resurrection. All of them are necessary to an understanding of resurrection. 
One writer has said, for what was necessitated by our sins was, in the first place, Christ's atoning death. And yet, had his death not been followed by his resurrection, it would not have been God's mighty deed for our justification. I think that's well said. So all of this that makes then makes way for what is the topic of the sermon and hopefully of our faith in life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And several things by way of some conclusion. Consider this, that the greatest crime in human history, can you think of a greater crime? The word made flesh. Life was taken from him. It was the hands of wicked men that laid hold of him. The greatest crime in history resulted in the greatest gain for sinners. The greatest crime in human history resulted in the greatest gain. The innocent one was given over and delivered up for the guilty. If that doesn't move you, I don't know that you can be moved. The innocent was given over and delivered up for the guilty. In our sin, he had no part except by way of imputation that the Father imputed our sins to him and his righteousness to us. The greatest crime, and it was a crime, the greatest injustice made way for a work of justice. It's not in my notes, I just thought of that. Because salvation is rooted and based upon God's just dealings. Secondly, and more to the point, I suppose, or as much to the point, is that resurrection must be seen in context. Hence the title of the sermon today. You can't have resurrection and truly understand resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus Christ or even ultimately our own resurrection apart from these other truths which are embedded in all of these texts. And so we're not in a a position to balkanize the Christian faith and divide it up and, 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 and draw conclusions with with all sorts of competing agendas and and the rest of it. It hangs together from beginning to end. In fact, there are three things that cannot be separated at the risk of balkanizing the Bible. The first is the Old and New Testaments. It can't be divided. but they're important to each other. The second thing that that can't be separated 
without balkanizing the Christian faith, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death of Christ is central to our faith. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is pivotal to our faith. And then the third thing that can't be divided or separated or balkanized is the Father and the Son. As if there are different perspectives, different plans, different programs, different whatever the case might be. And so here's a text that takes away the itch for innovation, the craving for change. It eviscerates that nervous twitch that says, we must do something. What did Abraham do? He believed God. And what is it that we are called upon to do? To believe God. To believe promise. That's what Abraham did. That life would come to dead bodies and that Abraham and Sarah would have a son and of course that son is an ancestor to the Lord Jesus Christ Paul even makes that point in Galatians chapter 3 that Christ is the son of Abraham can't fix what's not broken. And there's nothing broken about the gospel. And so, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is there to do to earn our salvation? Nothing. Nothing but compliance. Nothing but faith. It is for those who believe. It's for us and for our salvation. All of our hopes are pinned upon Him. And all of our hopes are pinned upon this course of action, beginning in eternity, culminating in time and of course we could go on and speak of the ascension as well which is rooted in the resurrection John Brown wrote on no subject is it of more importance to have distinct and accurate notions than on the way in which a guilty human being righteously condemned on account of his sins may obtain the forgiveness of sins and be treated by a righteous God as if he were a righteous person. That there is such a method is a truth clearly revealed in Scripture and it is distinctly stated that there is only only through the knowledge and belief of what God has revealed respecting this method of salvation that the individual sinner can obtain a personal interest in it and in the invaluable benefits which it secures, which it alone can secure.
And then there, another writer has said it must continue to hold that central place in all preaching that reaches out to those who have never accepted Christ. Psychological insights on how to co-opt God for one's own advantage are not only powerless to effect change, but obscure the real gospel in the attempt to make it relevant. Here we discover the economy of grace who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Let us pray. Our Father, we do look to you again with thanksgiving upon uh, within our hearts, praise upon our lips for this wonderful exchange, verified, certified, and proclaimed by the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Send us on our way rejoicing and thankful and believing. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.